Good morning. It is so good to be with you again. Thank you for having me back with you. So I'm talking about stories today. Um, so I'm going to start by telling you a story um, about something that I experienced in the days following my last visit with this fellowship. So for those of you who heard me speak last time, you may remember that I told a little bit about my personal history with this building and my time living in Murfreesboro. Um, let's see. While I grew up in Williamson County and have lived in Nashville now for many years, Murfreesboro was my home from the time I was 18 until I was 29. So an extremely formative decade. This was 1998 to 2009. Um, and the memory of that time still carries a very particular weight for me. So I came to Murfreesboro, like so many thousands of students do, to attend college. MTSU was the only school I applied to. Um, it was the closest university to where I grew up, so several of my friends from high school went there. It was an easy and simple choice to make. And once I arrived here, I initially plunged into my first year as a theater student with vigor and excitement. I was thrilled to be living away from my parents, in a dorm. I was in Lion Hall, which a building in 1998 was super luxurious because we had sinks like in our rooms. Like we still had to share a bathroom, but we had our own sink. Now my niece is in a suite with like all the, um, anyway, it was cool then. Um, and I was really thrilled to be taking theater classes and to get the chance to hopefully be involved in plays that had a production level that were, had a higher measure of good about them than my high school plays. Within just a few weeks though, it became clear that college was not going to be a breeze for me. I struggled deeply with anxiety and depression, and without proper accountability, I found it very, very easy to skip class. My anxiety after skipping class would be so great that I would avoid going again, and then again, and well, you can imagine how that went. So this means that I spent a lot of time steeped in shame. I was often hiding my failings in school from my friends and family. I was a master at not talking about the hard stuff. So that meant I would end up at the end of semesters in a pretty bad spot, where I had the option to either ask for help and shock people who had no idea what had been happening, or continue to hide. And more often than not, I did the latter until I simply couldn't anymore. I didn't have a choice. In the end, it took me 11 years to get my bachelor's degree. I graduated in 2009 at the age of 29. By that point, I had done quite a bit of work on myself, and I had grown immensely. My 20s were, as they are for most, a time of self-discovery and a time of healing. I was truly building a foundation for who I am and how I wanted to live this life. Even though I eventually accomplished my goal of getting my bachelor's degree, and even though I spent that entire period of time with tumult with school and with my mental health, with a thriving support, of, uh, support group of friends and chosen family, I still came through it all, maintaining a fairly negative set of beliefs about myself. I was believing what I have now come to know was a big lie, one that though I am still learning to shake, but it was a belief that if given to my natural tendencies, I am a lazy and irresponsible person. Over those years, this belief became core to how I thought of myself, and it felt like a constant burden to overcome. Even as I moved into my 30s and began to build a career and then a marriage and eventually a family, I had this underlying negative belief about myself that was informed by a certain narrative that I had come to understand was true. So, 
Flash forward to this past year, I'm in my 40s now, and I'm married, as was mentioned, with two small children. They're three and a half and 13 months, and it's wild. Um, <laughs> my job, while fulfilling, is often very demanding. It requires a lot of work in the evening sometimes and on weekends, and lately a lot of travel. Um, and in the midst of this, I finally found a way to pursue my long-held desire of going to seminary. So I just, as you guys know, began my first semester as a part-time student. Um, I also help run a fairly large monthly event for the LGBTQ community in East Nashville, and I'm fortunate enough to have the opportunity several Sundays a year to connect with fellow Unitarian Universalists from a pulpit like this one. I am extraordinarily busy. <laughs> for a person who always struggled with procrastination and had repeated issues with fulfilling their obligations in my undergraduate work, I am now, without question, taking on an immense amount of responsibility, and I have a calendar that is often overbooked. Even still, with all my blessings, in quiet moments or times where I feel overwhelmed creeping in, that voice of self-doubt will start to speak up, telling me that I have to fight these inner demons of laziness and irresponsibility. The old story of who I am at my core tries to take the lead. If I don't work extremely hard, I will paint myself with a narrative of shame and disappointment over how I live my life in the past. It's been a very hard demon to shake. So, arriving again in the present. A few months ago, I was here, or maybe last month, who knows, it feels like it's been a whirlwind. I was in this building for the first time with you, and I made an account as part of my talk that Sunday of all I had been a part of while working at the Center for the Arts back in college. I included in my talk a list of all the productions I worked on as an actor and a director. I talked about the children's acting classes I had taught here. I didn't list the hours that I worked in the office or in the scene shop or the weeks that I pulled up a whole bunch of overtime while I had a second job elsewhere. It was when they had this massive Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit here and like thousands of people came through the building. So making and reciting that list as well as the exercise I did as a part of that, like doing the math on the timeline on when I was so involved in theater here, like kind of wowed me. Because it made me start to think about all the other things I did successfully during that period. Outside of the Center for the Arts, I was involved in several productions at MTSU. I held jobs for years at a time at a few local businesses. Uh, the Naughty Knitter, um, I was, worked there when it first opened, when it was down the street, and I worked at a paint your own pottery store that's gone now for a while. I was also part of a thriving community centered around Murfreesboro's music scene, and I spent countless nights supporting my friend's music, many, many times, not just as an audience member, but as someone taking the door or selling merchandise at the back of the venue. I spent a lot of nights at Sebastian's and the borough, a lot, in the early 2000s. So on the drive home after my last Sunday with you, I couldn't help but meander a little bit through the streets nearby, driving past the homes I'd had on Bell Street and Main Street, letting some nostalgia creep in, and also encountering the ghost of all the pain and shame that had surrounded me for so long when thinking about my time here. For a decade, I had been letting myself believe that a story, letting myself believe a story about myself that I was bad at school, and that meant that I was lazy, and when given the chance, would not live up to my responsibilities. I had spent years living with the story as if it were true. And even though I had started to form a new narrative about my life now, I still believed the old one about my life then, and I considered it an actual part of me, like truth. 
So then I rattled off that list to all of you and about the things I had done here, and suddenly I felt this sense of disorientation around my old story. I wasn't sure how it could actually be totally true. I had struggled in school and with my mental health during that period, without a doubt. But it also could be argued that the young woman who worked on six plays back to back with no break and also had a job and also was trying to figure out these problems in school and also never missed a performance of her best friend's, her best friend's band on the square could not have possibly been lazy. She was in reality very busy. She was in fact showing up for her peers in the theater day after day, even performing while sick or exhausted. It was if, even after years of working to entangle these negative beliefs about myself, in telling this new version of my story, however unintentionally, I had disproved a theory about myself. It was liberating. And it also felt like clear evidence that I still had a lot of work to do to ensure I was looking at my life and my perceptions of the lives of others with a wider lens. As part of my seminary studies at Meadville Lombard, I recently watched a video interview with Raymond Panneker. Panneker was a Roman Catholic priest and a philosopher who was a teacher and proponent of interreligious dialogue. His mother was Spanish and Roman Catholic and his father was Indian and Hindu. So with this background, Panneker was born into the understanding that those of different spiritual beliefs and their resulting worldviews can live together in love and collaboration. In the interview I watched, Panneker discusses his metaphor of the window. In this metaphor, he says that each of us looks at the world through our own window. We all have a view and perception of the world around us that is uniquely ours to see from an angle that only we can observe. Often, we can easily forget that we're looking through that window. The glass is so clean, the story has been so polished that the window just disappears. And it's only when we encounter another person who sees something differently that we are now snapped back into that reality that our window is only just that. And that each and every person we encounter is looking through their own vantage point. Panneker emphasizes that in order to remember that our view, our story, our version of events is just that, it's our story, just ours, and that we must stay in dialogue with other people in order to hear from what they see. This helps us keep from believing that our perceptions are absolute truths, and it also allows us to experience an even more expansive experience of the world and our lives. We need to, one, be reminded that our view is just one of an infinite number of views, and two, that the ability to break free from the narratives we previously held is something to be cherished and not feared. For example, I needed you all and the invitation to be with you in worship in order to snap out of my own set of limiting beliefs about myself. I needed this new, fresh perspective in order to continue my own healing and my own personal narrative. And it may sound like a simple exercise, simply rattling off a list of things I did in my 20s that led to my small but mighty realization, but it was also the context of that experience. Being able to share that list from a pulpit with a community gathered in faith that emphasized and allowed for my learning. Each and every one of us 
whether we are conscious of it or not, are living just as I am, with a particular story about themselves that is their truth. These stories are unavoidable, and if we are lucky, they eventually become stories full of grace and compassion for ourselves and our circumstances. Our stories about ourselves are also coupled with stories we believe about the world, as Panikker said, one that shapes our belief systems and our understanding of other people. It can be dizzying to step back and try to live in this truth that each and every one of us is living with an entirely unique set of stories, and these define our experiences of the world. That no two people have the same set of perceptions. No two people will ever walk through this life with an identical set of circumstances. So doesn't this mean, that also, doesn't this mean also that no two people will look out into the world through windows that are positioned in the same spot? Even someone that you spend all day in and day out with is still going to see things differently than you. And absolutely every single person that you meet and are in relationship with, it offers up an opportunity to experience more of the world because they hold their own story and their own understanding. And what a gift we are to each other in this way. Each person is a portal into an entirely new way of seeing the world. In their book, Active Hope, doctors Joanna Macy and Chris Brownstone offer up a set of tools around how to stay active in this world to change and better it even when you feel overwhelmed or frightened by the circumstances. And one of the first things they do in the book is to crack open and help explain the truth that each of us believes a different story about the world itself, as I've been talking about. And they use an example of three different stories about the world. The first story is called Business as Usual. And it presents a belief that the world and its systems are what they are and will continue to be so. The story of business as usual maintains that in order to survive in this life, we must find our place in the current system. And that those who believe this story, that believe that in order to progress, we must grow everything, grow endlessly the economy, grow the population, endlessly proliferate technology, etc. Getting ahead in this life is the main plot point of that story business as usual. In that story, the problems of the world are seen as irrelevant to the drama in our own personal lives. When I read that story, it felt so familiar to me when I thought about frustrations I had with other people, and that's why I'm including it here. Um, the second story that Macy and Johnstone present is titled The Great Unraveling, and it centers on a belief that things are, for lack of a better term, falling apart. Economic decline, climate change, social division, and war all play a part in the perception that our world is in a serious decline and that continuing to go about business as usual is tantamount to accepting the fate of disaster. In this story, there is nothing we can do about this. The business as usual story and the great unraveling offer two starkly different narratives about the exact same world. We all probably know people who believe these stories and we interact with them daily, and how differently will one person's action be, actions differ than another's simply based on the story that they are currently living in. The third story that the book offers up is entitled The Great Turning, and it involves the transition from a doomed economy of growth to, and I'm quoting here, a life-sustaining society committed to the recovery of our world. I hope that one also sounds familiar to you as well. The people that believe this third story, that things are going, well, in a bad direction and that our current system is leading us to destruction, <laughs> but we have a role to play and that we have agency in turning things around, 
will again make their choices based from a very different grounding than someone who is believing business as usual. I think it can be fair to say too though, that most people who maintain the stories of business as usual don't believe these stories through any huge fault of their own. The stories most of us encounter throughout our lives lend to this narrative. I mean, we hear it from politicians, we read it in books, we see it in movies. So many people have the ability to move through this world, not only without the chance to hear their neighbor describe the view from their metaphorical window, but also never even getting the message that they're looking through the window in the first place. So what an immense privilege and blessing it is to even get the chance to realize that our perceptions and that the stories we believe about ourselves and the world are just that. We have a chance to experience more, to better love ourselves, and to more effectively work for change in the world the moment we have something or something to remind us, someone or something to remind us that our perceptions shape our reality, our perceptions will be different than anyone else's as a rule, and then we only gain by learning and hearing more about those lived stories of our neighbors. So, now that we know we're living in story, what do we do with that? How do we use this knowledge to better ourselves, to strengthen our relationships, and to ultimately expand our influence for good in the world? First of all, I would challenge you to let this realization open for you, just as it has recently for me, the door to greater love and compassion for yourself. In her book, Living Beautifully, Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron tells each of us to free yourself from the story of you. We all struggle with limiting beliefs about ourselves, that, tied up, that are tied up in the stories we perceive about our lives. The Buddhist notion of non-identification or working to stop clinging to certain perceptions and beliefs can be a tool to help us stop forgetting, to help us stop forgetting that our beliefs about ourselves, while very real, aren't necessarily true. Children writes, our identity, which seems so reliable, so substantial, is in fact very fluid, very dynamic. There are limited possibilities to what we might think, what we might feel, and how we might, there are unlimited possibilities to what we might think, what we might feel, and how we might experience reality. So just as I received the gift of hearing myself describe the period of life where I called Murfreesboro home just a few weeks ago, each of us has the ability to step back and look at a particularly negative story, uh, particularly negative stories we believe about ourselves in a new way. Chances are with some examination, we can surface and integrate a new perspective or a piece of information that can help us heal and operate with more confidence and better believe in ourselves. Once we begin to recognize our own habits of storytelling about our own lives, we can be opened up to recognize that those we are in relationship with are doing the same thing. And when we, when we know that, we can better give each other grace. Recently at work, some coworkers and I were tasked with putting on an event. The event was outdoors in Florida under a very hot sun. I arrived about an hour into the setup to find my coworkers unhappy with each other. Everybody was mad. I didn't know if they were hot, their faces were red, or they were just ticked off at each other, but it was tense. And two people were frustrated with another person because they didn't think they were working hard enough. They thought they were taking too many breaks. We were setting up for a basketball tournament in Orlando. It was like 95 degrees. This other person was feeling frustrated because she felt her coworkers had been unnecessarily rude to her, not just that day, but like the whole week prior. And everyone felt angry and was making up their own story about the other people involved. 
Later, I was in conversation with one of them, the person who'd been judged for taking breaks during the day. And I saw her take a few puffs from an inhaler. Turns out she, had, she was working through bronchitis, and she'd really been struggling to breathe. And then as she complained to me about the rudeness of her other teammates, I reminded her of a tool that I try to use when I don't understand someone's behavior, and that's asking myself the question, what piece of the story am I missing? What don't I know that could be causing someone to behave a certain way? It turns out that I knew that that rude coworker was having a really rough day. She was upset because she'd been told that she was moving off of a project that she really, really enjoyed, and she was working through that. All the parties involved were operating their, uh, operating their assumptions off of incomplete information. And I think the lesson here is that perhaps we always are. It's a little unsettling, but I think that's true. There will always be pieces of the puzzle we are missing. It's impossible to know everything. So the trick is to get comfortable enough with this fact to put space in between your initial perceptions and your reaction. The trick is to maintain the belief that there is always more to the story. So, today I am asking you to zoom out and ask yourselves a few questions. What stories do you believe about yourself? What stories do you believe about the world? What stories are you telling? How are you shaping your world in this way? How are you shaping the world of others? And how are they shaping you? As Macy and John Stone tell us in Active Hope, the most telling choice of all may well be the story we live from and see ourselves participating in. In choosing our story, we not only cast our vote of influence over the kind of world future generations inherit, but we also affect our own lives in the here and now. When we find a good story and fully gives ourself, give ourselves to it, that story can act through us, breathing new life into everything that we do. May it be so.